patronising, interrupting, ignoring, talking over, shouting down and mansplaining. Not to mention outright trolling, abusing, threatening and humiliating. They're just a few of the deliberative vices that plague too many of our discussions, both in person and online. This matters not just for our interpersonal and work relationships, but also for the quality and legitimacy of our democracy, which builds on the idea that we're all equal participants in setting our own legal framework. So what can we do about the poor quality of our public discourse and deliberation? And perhaps more importantly, who should do something about it? I'm your host, Associate Professor Paul Formosa, and welcome to In the Cave, an ethics podcast. Here to help us think about these ideas today is Professor Sarah Sorrell. Sarah is an executive member of the Macquarie University Research Centre for Agency, Values and Ethics, or CAVE, and a professor in the Macquarie Law School, as well as a philosopher by training. Sarah, welcome to In the Cave. Thanks, Paul. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. So you recently published an article in the journal Ethical Theory and Moral Practice, looking at the problems of inclusion and exclusion in deliberative democracy. So I suppose a useful way for us to start is, can you tell us what exactly is deliberative democracy? Sure. Well, at its most basic level, it's one of many theories of democracy. And it's based on quite a simple idea, I think. Um, and that is that all political decisions should be the product of deliberative practices or deliberative processes, as it were, that includes all of those who are going to be affected by the issue or the decision. Um, so basically, if there's a law or a policy that's going to affect you, you should have the opportunity to participate in how that law or policy is shaped or comes about. And obviously, deliberation is very different to influencing or simply voting on the issue. It's about shaping the law or policy that will ultimately affect you. Okay, so that, that's helpful. So often when we think of democracy, we just reduce it down to voting. And clearly, deliberation is something distinct. So I suppose one question we want to think about uh, when we sort of translate these ideas into the real world is how deliberative is our democracy? So can you give us some examples of how our real-world democracy lives up to the ideals of deliberative democracy and ways in which it falls fairly uh, far short of that? Yeah, well, I guess they're kind of two different questions because how deliberative is our democracy? I would say it is quite deliberative. It is based on talk, maybe not the kind of talk that we aspire to or the ideals of deliberative theory, but deliberation occurs everywhere. Um, more recent um, accounts of deliberative democracy focus on what's called the systemization of democracy or you know, a systems theory approach to democracy. And this is the idea, and, and, and this systems approach is kind of an attempt to make sense of the messiness of real-world deliberation. Um, and so the idea here is that deliberation in a democracy takes place across a whole host of sites. Um, some of those sites are formal, some of those sites are informal, and there's a whole bunch of stuff that's in between. And so deliberation happens in government, it happens in parliamentary inquiries, it happens in courtrooms um, and other formal spaces like citizens' assemblies, for instance. And in some of those spaces, the deliberative ideals are met. Um, and so in lots of citizens' assemblies, the deliberative ideals of democracy are met in terms of you know, giving reasons, adopting the perspective of others and so on. I don't know that it happens in parliament <laughs> all the time, um, but it certainly happens in some formal deliberative forums. But there are also a lot of informal deliberative spaces where we talk about all sorts of issues and they're online spaces. Some of them are a little bit regulated or moderated. Some of them are completely unregulated. We deliberate on social media. And then there's a whole host of what I call in between the formal and the informal spaces. So what we're doing now is 
a deliberative site, as it were, or a deliberative space. But so are our conferences, our classrooms, our public lectures, televised panel discussions like Q&A, town hall meetings, and so on. And the idea behind the systems theory approach to deliberative democracy is that not all of these sites are going to meet the ideals of deliberation. Some are going to be quite problematic. Some might be very vitriolic, the kind of deliberation that happens in them. But nevertheless, those sites play an important role across the whole system because it might be that in these really informal, unregulated spaces where the quality of deliberation is not very high, we nevertheless expose or bring to light problems that we didn't otherwise know existed um, and they can then be taken up by other parts of the system. And so the idea that it's this actually complicated, interlocking, deliberative system where some parts of it are able to compensate for deficiencies in the other part of it. So deliberation is really complex. It happens across all these different sites. Some of it is better deliberation than others. But I would say to a greater or lesser extent, our democracies are deliberative. But whether they meet the ideals of deliberative theory is, I think, a separate question. Okay, so that, that's really helpful. So I want to sort of follow up on, on two things. So one you said at the start is that everyone who is under some law should have some role in the deliberation. Now, is that always the case? We, want to, we can look at some cases where that might not be. And the, the other thing is obviously there's a difference between merely talking and deliberating. Mm. And you talked about like how different standards of that. So sort of following up from that a little bit, deliberative democracy seems to require quite a lot of us. Uh, of all citizens. It requires much more than just turning up every three years and, and ticking a box on a voting paper. You actually have to deliberate, deliberate with others and not just talk or persuade. You've got to deliberate and everyone has to do that. So I suppose one, one worry that people sometimes raise with deliberative democracy is, is the worry whether this is too over-demanding, whether deliberative democracy requires too much of citizens, that they have to require uh, develop certain virtues or something like that. So h- how do you sort of respond to that worry? Well, I think you're right. I think it's a very demanding theory and there are different responses to that. Some critics would say it's just too too demanding, it's over-demanding, and so it's not really, it's not really viable. But I think there are different interpretations um, of deliberative theory. I think on, on one account, it's not that every single person who's affected by an issue has to deliberate about it. Um, because if you adopt that approach, then you, know, you, you come up with all sorts of problems, some of them pragmatic, but some of them also related to the quality of deliberation that's going to happen in these massive forums and so on. Um, and so I think it's more a question of or more an issue of a variety of perspectives have to be taken into account as part of the deliberative process or as part of the procedures or mechanisms for arriving at a political or policy decision. Um, I think it's also the case that if you want to deliberate, you should have the opportunity to do so. So some people are completely uninterested and if you are, that's, that's fine. But I think it's a real problem if you are interested, but you're excluded from participating or you don't have the opportunity to participate. And so again, I think they're two, two different issues. And I think it comes down to how you interpret deliberative theory. So I, I don't really interpret it in that strong sense of everybody who is affected must deliberate. I think it's, it's sufficient that a variety of views are represented in the deliberative process. Excellent. So that leads exactly to my next question. So you, you talked about people who want to participate, but maybe can't. And so you, in your paper, you focus on two particular problems, that of exclusion and uptake. And it'd be helpful if we sort of do them one at a time yep. so we can keep them separate. Exclusion is that some ways sort of follows on from what we just talked about. Like in many ways, deliberations can be quite an elitist activity. It seems like, you know, people who are like us have um, PhDs in philosophy, for example, probably pretty good at deliberation. 
someone who's more marginalized member of society may uh, may struggle at more formal, even more informal types of deliberation. They also might lack um, you know access or time to engage in deliberation. They might lack confidence. They might have disabilities or other sorts of problems. And often these are the people who are going to be most effect, uh, impacted or most affected by uh, certain policies. So how, how, do we, how do we sort of overcome this exclusion problem? Maybe people who want to but sort of struggle or can't really participate or can't participate as well as others. Thanks, Paul. That is a really big, big <laughs> issue. Um, That's what we're here for. <laughs> yeah, I think, um, look, I think the exclusion problem is a huge one. So I addressed two massive problems in deliberative theory in this paper. The first one is the exclusion problem that you mentioned and the second is the problem of uptake. I think both of them are the product of entrenched structural inequalities um, in our society. And so I don't think there's an easy fix to either issue. So the exclusion problem is a huge one. And what I'm trying to do in this paper is just address a very, very small part of it. And so you mentioned earlier that deliberation might be something that people who are better educated are better at. And I think that's true if you just focus on the deliberative skills that you need to deliberate. And so, you know, the reason giving, the perspective taking, making a forceful argument, the speaking confidently and so on. But I also think there's a whole host of deliberative virtues that people in privileged positions don't necessarily exercise. And I would say this is also true of philosophers. (laughs) And so virtues like humility or virtues like listening, not speaking over the top of others and, and so on. All of these practices function to exclude certain speakers. Um, from deliberation. Um, And that's why in this paper I wanted to focus on the virtues that I think privileged speakers ought to cultivate as a way of addressing the problem of exclusion. But I think, suffice it to say, that I think the problem of exclusion is huge. I think that deliberative theory, and this is a, a huge criticism of it, assumes the existence of certain features in a society that may or may not be there. And I think at a at a minimum, it requires a substantive notion of equality of opportunity particularly educational opportunity. Um, And in other work, I've talked about this kind of backstory that doesn't get told about how we develop the deliberative skills, virtues that we need. And so, you know, I think a lot of these skills need to be trained in childhood, taking turns, listening, perspective taking, giving reasons and so on. But I would also say that there has to be an element of socioeconomic equality in a society for this to function. And also, you know, as you mentioned, some people don't have time to deliberate. They might have the capacities, they might have the motivation, but they simply don't have time. And sometimes this is because of the unequal division of domestic labour. So people, mostly women, do tend to have more onerous responsibilities in relation to caring for children or elderly parents or whatever else. And that might prevent them or exclude them from participating in, in the event that they want to. So how can deliberation overcome the exclusion problem? Well, restructuring our entire society. Um, Simple. (laughs) But I guess what I'm proposing in this paper is a much more modest suggestion and that that is that certain privileged speakers need to cultivate certain virtues. And and one of those virtues is what I call facilitating an equitable deliberative space. And then that involves a whole cluster of other duties like remaining silent, listening to what people are saying. If you feel like somebody is excluded from deliberation, bring them into the conversation. Kind of the practices we do in the classroom. We feel like one student's dominating the discussion. We ask them to pipe down while we bring in other students. I think these are virtues that we need to, to cultivate. Um, and we, in fact, have a responsibility to cultivate them. Cultivate them. Yeah, excellent. So, no, I think that's right. Taking the onus off 
people to uh, develop all the deliberate skills and also put some of the onus on other people to facilitate that discussion. I think that, that seems right. The other issue you talk about is uptake, so that even if people with marginalised voices are heard, what they say might not have its proper deliberative force because of the, some structural inequalities which you talked about before, and particularly one around epistemic injustices, which we'll, which we'll get to now. So that even, even if someone is able to say something, what they say might not get the uptake it deserves because we don't count what they say or don't take it as seriously uh, as we would if someone else said that from a more privileged group. So to help us sort of understand this problem, can you sort of explain a little bit about what epistemic injustice is and why it matters in the context of uptake and deliberative democracy? Sure. So the problem of uptake refers to the way that socially marginalised speakers are treated when they're included in deliberation. And so the issue here isn't so much that they're excluded, it's that when they are in, in a deliberative space, um, their speech is dismissed or it's not taken seriously, not because there's anything wrong with its content, but because of their social identity. Um, and Miranda Fricker has referred to this as epistemic injustice. Um, so, for example, a woman might be formally included in deliberation, she might have excellent speaking skills and you know, communicate in all the ideal ways, but she's not deemed a credible speaker because of some unconscious bias about women. And there are lots of other features of women's experiences in deliberation that include things like being interrupted by men, gnawed, spoken over the top of, and so on. Again, I think these behaviours and practices are the product of social inequalities. And as Nancy Fraser has argued, they infect deliberation even when there are no formal barriers to participation. As to what we can do about this, in the paper I draw on um, Miranda Fricker's idea of training one's testimonial sensibility and suggest that privileged speakers kind of need to be on high alert about what's happening in these communicative spaces. Um, and they also need to be on high alert about these communicative pathologies, as they, as they were, that kind of distort what's happening in deliberation. And I argue that they have various responsibilities for calling out this kind of behaviour when others are engaging in it, and also being hypervigilant and kind of training themselves about you know, the, the unconscious biases that they might be making about certain speakers and so on, kind of training out the communicative pathologies that they may have picked up as part of you know, the way we internalise and pick up all sorts of social norms. So as you said in your earlier uh, answer, Sarah, deliberation is not something just occurs in, around political issues, right? Deliberation is something we do in, in work and uh, education, interpersonal contexts, and occurs both obviously online and offline. So a, a nice way to sort of finish up here is, do you have any kind of practical steps that listeners, I suppose both kind of more privileged and less privileged listeners, uh, could take to help make deliberate encounters with others, you know, better, fairer, more inclusive for everyone? Yeah, you're right. I mean, as I said earlier as well, deliberation happens everywhere. It's happening in this interview. It happens in our staff meetings, in our classrooms. It happens with our children and so on. And what I'm proposing in this paper is actually quite simple. And the fact is that we know that these communicative pathologies exist. I mean, I don't know a single woman who hasn't experienced some of the behaviours that I'm talking about. And so now I think we need to take individual and collective responsibility for addressing them. And yes, it is, the, it is the case that a lot of them are the product of quite entrenched social inequalities and a lot of that work has to happen in the background as well, but that's not really my concern in this paper. My concern in this paper is that given that socially privileged speakers engage in this behaviour more than others, I think that they have a greater responsibility for fixing the problem. And this means that they need to correct their own communicative behaviour. So. It's very simple things really, but when you think about it, or you probably don't think about it, people don't think about it. And so they're 
just keeps happening. But I guess it's about stop speaking over the top of others. Listen to what people are actually saying. Don't interrupt others. Don't dismiss a speaker because of who they are. And perhaps stop assuming you know more about another person's experience or expertise. And so I think that's kind of individual stuff that we can all do, particularly if you're a speaker who, who is privileged. But I also think it's really important that privileged speakers call out this behaviour when they see it happening. So tell your male colleague in a meeting that they've just interrupted a woman or have spoken over the top of her. Tell the online troll that they don't have the expertise to make that call. Now, I don't think that's going to affect what the troll does or says. I think online trolls are just going to keep going (laughs) as they always will. But it might get others around them to realise what's happening and to modify their communicative behaviour. Now, a lot of this behaviour, I think, is unintentional and unconscious. We've just formed habits of, of doing this as well. I, I think a lot of it is really unintentional. Um, so by calling it out, you bring to the surface the various pathologies that infect our communicative exchanges. And the final thing that I'll say is that I don't think the owners should be on marginalised groups to fix this. We shouldn't fight to be heard, as it were. This was my motivation behind this paper. Thanks, Sarah. That's such an interesting and important topic. And thank you very much for your deliberations today. It's been a pleasure. Look, understanding our own and others' structural advantages or disadvantages in deliberative contexts is obviously of crucial importance, not only for improving our democracy, but also for ensuring that all our deliberations, whether they occur about politics or something else, are fair and inclusive. By including as broad a range of perspectives and lived experiences as possible, we can help to ensure that our deliberations have the highest chance of being both successful and effective. And this is something that we can all benefit from, but it is also something that we have to help to bring about by allowing others to speak and by taking seriously what they say. But that is all we have time for today. If you wish to read Sarah's paper, there will be links in the show notes. Thank you for your time. This podcast has been a presentation of the Macquarie University Research Centre for Agency, Values and Ethics, or CAVE, and I've been your host, Associate Professor Paul Fumosa.